This episode involves the death of an actual human in a very famous murder and kidnapping case. If that's not your thing, you may want to skip to the plantier stories. So far in this podcast, we've mainly explored plants as victims. Which makes sense. We're in the middle of a massive crunching in the number of plant and animal species. Just an accordioning of life on this planet. We're expected to lose a million species by 2050 if things don't change. Plants are vulnerable right now. But there's another side to plant crimes. Plants aren't defenseless. They have millions of years worth of experience protecting themselves. Not only that, they serve as underappreciated detectives and witnesses. Botanical evidence is used in justice systems all over the world. The United States uses plants in courts less than some other places, but it has a long history that starts with arguably the most famous murder investigation in our country's history, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. You can listen to the details of this case on any number of true crime podcasts, so I'm just going to explore the bare minimum about the aviator Charles Lindbergh, his wife Anne, and the tragic ransom of their one-year-old son, Charles Jr. Because the really interesting part, in my opinion, is about a botanist named Arthur Kohler and how he pioneered a new field of forensics. We'll also talk to scientists who have brought this field into the 21st century. Shirley Graham is a retired professor and scientist who works in the Missouri Botanical Garden. She's the world's leading expert on the systematics, phylogenetics, and floristics of Lythraceae, a family of flowering plants that includes the pomegranate. Well, I'm a graduate with a PhD of the University of Michigan, and I have postdoctoral from Harvard University in uh, plant systematics. And I have at Kent State University with my husband, who is also a botanist geologist. We were there for 38 years, and we retired in 2002, and were invited to continue our research at the Missouri Botanical Garden in St. Louis, Missouri. So we've been here 17 years, and I identify plants. I write descriptions of plants. I look into the other aspects of plants, like their chromosomes, and now, of course, their DNA and pollen, uh, anything that reveals characters that allow you to understand how diversity of organisms, a group of organisms, has evolved through time. Before she retired, Graham taught a plant anatomy class, and all biology majors had to take at least one botany class to graduate. So a lot of these students were pre-med or in other biofields and didn't have a particular passion for plants. To drum up interest, Graham decided to get into one of the most universal human enthusiasms, true crime. The National Botanic Garden in Washington, D.C. ended up asking her to give a version of this lecture. Before I let Graham tell you about the intrepid botanist Arthur Kohler, here's a primer on the case. Charles Lindbergh was an aviator who became famous at age 25 for flying across the Atlantic Ocean even though he was not the first person to do so. Just so you know, he has a complicated legacy, to say the least. Later in his life and after his death, he began known for a few other less fun things, like his attraction to eugenics and multiple secret families in Europe. But that's not crucial for this story. In 1932, only five years after being rocketed up to fame by the transatlantic flight, his 20-month-old son was kidnapped, taken from right out of his crib on the second story of the Lindbergh house. 
The part about it being on the second story is important, so remember that. Someone who claimed to be the kidnapper asked for a ransom, and the Lindberghs paid it. But, sadly, they didn't return the baby. The police found the infant's remains in a forest two months after the kidnapping. That's where Arthur Kohler came in. Here's Graham on his background. He worked for the Forest Products Laboratory at the University of Wisconsin, and uh, he did diverse things that related to anatomy and plants. He was an expert in being able to identify the plants, especially woody plants, by their cell types. And that's how he happened to get involved. Kohler lived in Madison, Wisconsin, and worked for the U.S. Forest Products Laboratory. There, he tested and investigated wood. He had been working in this capacity for 21 years and ID'd thousands of trees a year according to his legal testimony at the trial of Bruno Richard Hopman for the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh Jr. He also wrote a textbook called The Properties and Uses of Wood. About 10 years before this case, he had helped identify the Yule bomb killer as John Mangason based on wood chips that were both in the bomb and Mangason's workshop. The police had marked the serial numbers of the money that the Lindberghs used to pay ransom, and Hopman used one of them to buy gas. Kohler was there to add evidence against him. The chief defense attorney didn't want him to testify, according to Shirley Graham. He threw in confusing questions about whether Kohler had ever worked as a carpenter, which he had. This strategy was supposed to make him seem less credible as a witness, but it didn't work. The prosecution, they didn't want to accept him as an expert. They essentially broke down to him as more of a carpenter than an expert, but he was a, a Ph.D. and a full professor and... He was, he was far more than a carpenter. So I think the idea that they, that they weren't wanting to accept his evidence was just a point of trying to not see the value in it and to help their defendant. Kohler's testimony was complex, but once the jurors understood it, pretty incriminating for Hopman. The kidnapper had used a ladder to get to the second floor, which is where Charles Lindbergh Jr.'s room was. Here's Shirley. Apparently carried the ladder to the home of the Lindberghs, which was in nearby New Jersey, and had it placed against the second-story window that led to the baby's nursery. And he used the ladder to climb up, enter the nursery, and carry the baby out. It does sound, as you read some of the evidence about the case, that he may have dropped the baby. One of the rungs on the ladder was broken and that may have led to the baby's death. But at any rate, the latter was very much involved in access to the baby itself. The police picked up the latter afterwards as evidence. This latter was homemade, unique, and pretty cleverly designed. Hobman could make a quick getaway by breaking the latter into three parts that he could quickly store in his car. Four different kinds of wood made up the latter. Douglas fir, ponderosa pine, southern yellow pine, and birch. Crucially, says Graham, one of these pieces of wood had clearly belonged to some other construction, since it had random nail holes in it. Since the wood was unfinished, Kohler thought it might have come from an attic or garage. He was asked to identify the kinds of plants that were used. In this case, it was Douglas fir and a couple of pine species and birch wood that they used for the dowels to hold the, the ladder together. 
and he provided his expertise in that regard. And the evidence that he provided really was perhaps underrated, but certainly because it doesn't compare today to the excitement of DNA and sequences, but it was meticulously done. His measurements were meticulous to the eighth of an inch, and and he was able to actually tell them very early in the investigation that the ladder was made from partly from a piece of used wood and that they should be looking for a place where a piece of wood had been cut out of any area, home, or what structure that, that the kidnapper might have been living in or near. Southern yellow pines are East Coast trees. Kohler took exact measurements of how the tree was cut and sent the description to more than 1,500 mill operators to see if their machine had made the wood. 23 said that they had, so Kohler took some sample wood from each of those places. He was able to trace it back to M.G. and J.J. Dorn Company. The next step was to find the lumber yard that the M.G. and J.J. Dorn Company shipped wood to. Kohler and the New Jersey State Police visited all 25 of the M.G. and J.J. Dorn Company's customers. They found an exact match at the National Millwork and Lumber Company in the Bronx. But there, Kohler met a dead end. The company didn't keep records on their customers and had no names to give him. So the breakthrough had to come in a different way. The police found and arrested Hopman because he tried to cash one of the bills that the Limbergs had given for the ransom money. The police had marked the serial numbers so that they could find them in circulation. And because Kohler had done so much research, he knew the region where the kidnapper was supposed to be located and the details of the wooden board that would probably be missing from their garage or attic. Sure enough, the plank from the ladder matched the wood in Hotman's attic, and there was a gap in the floor where Hotman had removed it to make the ladder. Kohler was able to say all of this in Hotman's trial. Despite all this information and his qualifications, Hotman's lawyer still called the whole idea of botanical evidence into question. He said, We say there is no such animal known among men as an expert on wood, that it is not a science that has been recognized by the courts, that it is not in a class with handwriting experts or with ballistic experts. But this is no science. This is merely a man who has had a lot of experience in examining trees, who knows the barks on trees, and a few things like that. We may say that the opinion of the jurors is just as good as his opinion, that they are just as qualified to judge whether there is any relationship between those two pieces of board as this man of experience as he terms himself. With his next statement, the judge sealed the legitimacy of botanical evidence in the United States. I think the witness is qualified as an expert upon the subject matter. He still let the lawyer cross-examine Kohler, though. Kohler went on to describe how the nails that stuck up from underneath the attic floor fit the ladder board perfectly. Not only was the plank and the rest of the wood in Hotman's attic from the same type of tree, it had the same size growth rings, which Kohler demonstrated in court by rubbing a pencil back and forth on a piece of paper over the wood. He was even able to say what kind of chisel the kidnapper used to do his carpentry on the wood, which the prosecutor matched to a tool found in Hotman's car. So Kohler's testimony was not good news for Hopman. But also, his tools were limited. He couldn't tell, for example, if Hopman had visited East Amwell, New Jersey, where the kidnapping had happened. That's something our modern-day Kohler, Dr. Von Bryant, might have been able to figure out, just based on the pollen on his clothes. 
I'm Vaughn Bryant. I am a Regents Professor of Anthropology at Texas A&M University and also the Director of the Texas A&M Palynology Laboratory. Palynology is the study of pollen. Over the course of his career, Bryant has pioneered and advanced the field of forensic palynology. It started with honey. The U.S. government hired Bryant to identify internationally produced honey since the government was offering a subsidy that was higher than the worldwide base price. So if someone had wanted to scam the government, they just had to buy honey in another country and then sell it back to the U.S. and make a profit. Bryant agreed to the gig, but soon realized he had taken on a gargantuan task. Well, I spent that summer looking at 75 pollen samples for which the government paid me $50 a sample, which at that time, 50 years ago, was not a bad price. That's a pretty good price. However, I had spent a whole summer trying to figure out what those pollen types were by looking at books and by looking at articles and searching and sending pictures to other palynologists. Anyway, by the end of the summer, I had finished the 75 samples, but I estimated I made 10 cents an hour. I could I could have made more money flipping burgers. But the important, but the important thing was that I learned a lot of new pollen types. And I also discovered that worldwide, there are about 350,000 different plants that bees utilize to produce honey. 350,000. I had no idea there was that many. Even in North America, there's more than 60,000 in North America alone, plus the ones that have all been imported from all over the world. So anyway, so this is a real problem. So the next year, the government was so happy, they sent me another 100. And this went on for about five years until the base price for honey that the government was buying was lower than the price for world honey. So now people weren't selling to the government because they could sell it for more on the world market. But in that five-year period, I estimated that about 6% of the samples they sent me were foreign. They were not made in the United States. So that five-year period probably increased my knowledge of pollen analysis by a hundredfold, much more than I ever would have done under normal circumstances. And it was that knowledge that then enabled me to begin looking at forensics Brian's career is fascinating, and I wish I could fit the whole interview with him here, but I can't. But basically, the U.S. government wasn't considering the full application of pollen analysis, even though Bryant was trying to talk it up to everyone he knew. After 9-11, that changed. Bryant started working with the U.S. government, the CIA, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security as an expert witness. Here's one of his cases. This was a baby that was put into a, uh, was killed put into a garbage bag and thrown out into the Boston Harbor. By the time they found the baby, the uh, remains had been pretty much decomposed. There was no way to trace either the blood or the fingerprints or anything else. So they had no idea where this baby had come from. They thought maybe it could have floated into Boston Harbor from as far away as New York or as far south as somewhere in the Carolinas brought up by the Gulf Stream. So there was quite a bit of controversy trying to figure out where this baby came from. And they put out all kinds of posters and billboards asking if anybody had ever seen this baby. And they did a facial reconstruction by a forensic artist, which was not too bad. It was fairly close to what the baby actually looked like. Anyway, time went on and nothing happened. They 
had hundreds of clues, all of them dead, dead ends. Finally, somebody suggested, well, have you thought of doing pollen? <laughs> so they sent the garment, uh, a blanket and the clothing that was being worn by the baby, and they sent those to the Department of Homeland Security, where my graduate student was working. And he and I looked at the pollen types, and because of the very unique nature of the pollen that was attached to the child's clothing, we decided that it either had to have come from somebody living very close to the Arnold Arboretum in Harvard University of Boston, or it had to come from the Bronx Botanical Gardens in New York. And finally, we were able to narrow it down probably to the Arnold Arboretum in Philadelphia. We told the police that because of the pollen types present, that probably the individual must live within 1.5 kilometers of the Arboretum and probably had taken the child there on walks or perhaps playing in the park. Sure enough, they now narrowed their search down to an area around the Arnold Arboretum and soon they were able to locate the mother and her boyfriend, who was actually the one who accidentally killed the baby. But they were both complicit because they then decided to throw the baby into the harbor to get rid of the evidence. So this was a case where pollen proved to be very useful in helping to identify where the suspected murderers probably lived. And so that's an example of how it works when it works. Now, sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, sometimes the pollen is not unique enough to pinpoint a particular area. But when it does work, it's very good. These days, he's too busy as a professor to do much practical forensics. But his student, Andy Lawrence, works for the Department of Homeland Security. Brian spoke extensively about the lack of experts in his field. During my teaching career, I probably mentored more than 35 students who have gotten doctoral degrees doing pollen analysis. All but three of those were doing studies of archaeological deposits or reconstructing KO environments, and that's it. Now, I had two people in entomology who were interested in doing pollen as associated with honey or bees. And I had this one person who was, received a doctorate in anthropology, but he was willing to also, at the same time, train to do forensics. And so for several years, he was doing double duty. He was working on his dissertation in anthropology, but was also doing forensics. So here's the problem. I get people calling me, I don't know, every now and then, Students call me and say they're fascinated. They want to come and get a doctoral degree in forensics. And then I have to tell them, look, I am not in a forensic department. I'm in an anthropology department. I said, unless you want to come here and do a doctorate in anthropology and learn forensics on the side, there's no way I can help you. Well, I haven't found anybody yet who wanted to do that. That's too much work. So as far as being able to train anybody to do forensics, it ain't going to work because we're in an anthropology department. So unfortunately, with the exception of Andy, who is now working for Homeland Security, I haven't had any other student interested enough in doing forensics to want to do all that amount of extra work. 
I spoke to another forensics expert, Jason Bird, who's an associate professor with the University of Florida Department of Pathology, Immunology, and Laboratory Medicine, and the associate director of the William R. Maple Center for Forensic Medicine. And he said similar things. So if they wanted to do it here at UF, so they need a, a botany degree, usually a PhD is what's required. And, you know, it is great for them to have some forensic experience somehow. But the problem is just the time it takes to get a graduate degree in botany, it's PhD. So, you know, you go through the typical four-year undergraduate program, can go straight to a PhD, but in the natural sciences, most people stop off at a master's degree. So you have two and a half, three years in a master's degree, and then you move on to a PhD for you know, four more years. So you're talking seven to eight years after you graduate with a bachelor's degree before you get your PhD in hand. You can start consulting, you know, as a graduate student, you can have your graduate professor mentor you on that. But, you know, you're talking nearly a decade before a student who shows interest in the subject and then before they can get out there and operate on their own on casework. So it's a serious lifetime, which is what entomology went through. You know, when I was in graduate school, there were approximately eight other forensic entomologists in the country. So about the same number of entomologists then as we're dealing with botanists now. And now we've got almost 30 forensic entomologists practicing. So... 20 more years down the road, we'll probably have about the same number of botany students out. As 30 or 40 is still a remarkably small number. <laughs> you know, there's more there's more uh, NFL football players under contract, you know, for the NFL than we have uh, either forensic botanist or forensic entomologist now. So it's still a just a shortage of expertise and be able to get them out there to law enforcement to help them at the scene. I'm not going to lie, this sent me into a five-minute deep consideration of whether I should go back to grad school and become a forensic botanist. But Bird had another warning. Whoever decides to become part of the next generation of forensic botanists needs to be prepared. Bird says that the future of the field is in DNA analysis. Students come to me and ask, what area of forensic botany should they get into? Because we've got zoology and ecology and botany programs here at the University of Florida, and I tell them, like, well, whatever you're interested in, just make sure that there's a genetic component to it, because that's the way everything is going to go. And to be able to use genetics in ways that we haven't even thought of now, think about using genetics to identify to species, using genetics to classify it to an individual, but, you know, using genetics in ways that are very new and novel, it's not age. So you commit a crime outside, you damage a plant, you break a limb off of the plant, being able to use some of the genetic decomposition of the leaves itself or the woody tissue of that plant to determine how long ago that break may have occurred. Breakdown of RNA, not just DNA, but they're using RNA decomposition to come up with postmortem interval estimations and all sorts of tissue. So we're even seeing it now where it's not even really a DNA thing, it's genetics and RNA that can, that's more stable and has a, a predictable breakdown curve, a degradation curve over time. So yeah, I mean, everything seems to be going by way of genetics. So I always tell students, you know, if, if you like the science, find the genetics behind it. And I think the problem is a lot of students come into the forensic science, they come in because of what they see on TV. They like the application of the science, they don't necessarily like the science itself. If you don't like the science itself, you know, don't get into the forensic application of it. I mean, it's not fun. It's science first. Uh, it's sometimes very boring science, which, of course, they don't show it on television because it's 
boring. You like a lab environment, you like science and scientific method. Then the forensic application is only one small part of that. These cool 21st century tools would have been incredibly useful to Arthur Kohler, but he has retained his place in U.S. history, especially for forensic botanists. Most people of you today are still aware of the Lindbergh case, even if they aren't aware of the botany role in it. You know, they're certainly aware of the case itself. Botany and plant anatomy play a you know, major role in it. So yeah, I think it was um, you know, very beneficial. Got friends have gotten a lot of attention. A lot of people still refer to it. Uh, everybody in the field learns about that. You know, and how it was applied. It's a great way to link a you know, victim and a suspect, um, which is what botany can, can, can really do. Thank you to first listeners Leslie Nemo, John Agnew, and Nikki Duong for providing invaluable feedback. Thanks to Nikki Duong for our plant crimes illustrations. If you have plant crimes you want me to investigate, or if you want to place ads on this podcast, you can reach out to me via email or social media. If you are loving this season and want me to continue making this project, please let me know by sharing, reviewing, and supporting on Patreon. Thanks for listening!